Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Vroom, vroom. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exit for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern marvels, Chronos Gaming classics, and challenging ghost writers. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me vroom, vroom, then all over Twitter and Instagram, down in hell, at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me ghost riding my pontoon boat on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at DazzlerAOA. It's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can find me just hanging out playing with my boy thing yes and that of course means <laughs> that we're here to talk about avengers volume 5 challenge of the ghost riders written by jason aaron with art by stefano caselli luciano vecchio jason keith and eric arseniega with letters by vcs Corey pettit we're also here to discuss avengers volume 6 the star brand reborn with another team of incredible artists starting with jason aaron but this one getting a little bit more varied we have dale kwan and Andrea Sorrentino, Ed McGinnis, Paco Medina, and Francesco Mana, each doing part or all of an issue on pencils. From here, inks get a little manic with Joe Weems, Cam Smith, Craig Young, Andrea Sorrentino, Mark Morales, Ed McGinnis, Paco Medina, and Francesco Mana doing some inks. Colors and letters simplify out with Jason Keith, Eric Arseniega, and J. David Ramos on colors and VCs Corey Pettit bringing it over on letters. Now, this covers Avengers 22 through 30, which is frankly altogether less than some single volumes have contained. Yeah, these were some pretty tight, concise stories. I'm not hating how these stories didn't go on and on and on. I know it makes it hard for trade collecting, but like, I loved it. It told a story, it got in, it got out, did what it had to do. I. It's funny, like, they are tight stories and they move very quickly, but Challenge of the Ghost Riders feels very dense and very chaotic when you're in the middle of it. At one point, I tried to write down the plot so that I would be able to explain it a little bit. It's ultimately that building over the course of the last several months, there has been an energy that is driving Robbie Reyes's car a little batty. And we assume it's connected to whatever's going on with Robbie, where he's experiencing, you know, flashes to the Ghost Rider world, and he's having a bit more of a dark tale uh, personally. But it ultimately turns out, and hold the fuck on to whatever you can, because we're going in for it. The plot is revealed to be that in the pages of Guardians of the Galaxy, Danny Catch fought Cosmic Frank, who is Cosmic Ghost Rider, who is the Frank Castle raised by Thanos from another dimension created by Donny Cates. So, one more time, original Ghost Rider, who's actually not the original Ghost Rider, but he's the first one we followed, Danny Catch sent Cosmic Ghost Rider, who's an alternate universe's Frank Castle, who was raised by Thanos into the Hell Charger to get ready for Challenge of the Ghost Riders here. Now that was done in the then current volume of Guardians of the Galaxy number six. From there, we discover that the thing going on in Robbie's head is separate and is somehow something to do with his uncle Eli, who is currently the equivalent of possessing a dead Hell Celestial. All the while, Robbie is kind of fucking 
up this competition and Danny's like, LOL, you brought the least maneuverable vehicle. So what do the Avengers do? They bring a boat and the Avengers fucking find a way to get Cosmic Ghost Rider, who is so OP in this. Good fucking God. To uh, work with them, kind of, and they become the world's first flying pit crew and Robbie wins, abdicates the throne. Yeah, a lot happens here. Like, I don't think any of the parts get any of the fleshing out they deserve except for Robbie Reyes. Like, he just turned the page. Bam! Oh, there's Damon Hellstrom for some reason? Oh, boy thing is a bigger part of the team than he was? So many, so many pieces, so many pieces, so many pieces. I couldn't sit here and tell you Robbie has to race for the job he doesn't even want in hell. What a metaphor for being in this country (laughs) below the boomer generation. You are forced to race for the job you don't even want. What a person who won't abdicate it. (laughs) I would have more to say, but I got stuck in issue 22 on digital page 9, a shot of Robbie's beautiful torso, and I haven't looked at anything since. So I think that does mean that we should talk a bit about how this story takes so many chances right away. One of the things I love the most about Jason Aaron's Avengers, specifically at this moment, this is kind of where it happens, is it becomes an Avengers book for the TikTok generation. I feel like we get a lot of 30 second clips of what's going on and then we just jump to the next fucking thing and it's all sort of intermashed with cuts of popular songs from our childhoods (laughs) and it really works here. The strength of the opening is that I could literally have believed that every page until he was with the Avengers was a dream sequence. Everything Aaron did in that first seven or eight pages so pushes what we would conventionally assume a book might do. In fact, because so much happens in eight pages. My first thought was, how wasn't this a prelude to the challenge of the Ghost Riders, Robbie Reyes four issue miniseries that opens with this and ends with him going to the Avengers saying he needs help. Instead, Jason Aaron dispensed with any need to decompress this. Now, perhaps I agree, he overcompressed in places, but the willingness to take chances is what keeps this Avengers so fucking good. I love that scene. And you want to talk about perfect songs to go along with a scene when he's destroying the car and he like leaves it in the desert and you know he, he walks out of his house the next day and he's like god no that would have been the perfect place for that old Halloween song the cat came back just replace cat with car perfect I mean I absolutely see what you mean that you could have turned this story of like the hell that this car is putting him through into its own you know solo issue or mini and there's a lot of story right there I think Aaron cuts it perfectly so that you know we don't have a villain or a larger story to expand on but you get enough in these panels of like this situation is fucking Robbie up to the point where he literally just drives out to the desert to beat the shit out of his car and that's enough to tell you where we're at mentally and what we're trying to do I think anyone who has ever shiny hunted a Pokemon and not successfully caught it has that feeling of taking their switch out to the desert and hitting it with a baseball bat Legends of Arceus, Gyarados you've hurt me in so many ways and that's what this book really accesses for me. There's a humanity to 
Jason Aaron's work that is kind of the realism of the taste of sweat in your mouth. And I get that from every page, especially the colors on Challenge of the Ghost Riders. There is a, I mean, it's supposed to look like fire, but it burns inside a little bit more than it burns on the page. Like, I feel the color as I read this book. I get an uneasiness. And I need to just point out that I've always been a pretty decent Damien Hellstrom fan. In fact, I've actually sort of harassed Jason Aaron about how much I love the way he writes Damien Hellstrom and how like I need him to write him all the time. And, uh, you know, Damien Hellstrom, uh, this is the best he's ever looked. And I would subscribe to his OnlyFans so hard. (laughs) Oh my God, especially if Robbie guested. Oh man, that panel where their faces are just like looking at each other. And I'm like, you two could fucking cut diamonds with your faces, Angularity. This is like, this is facial undulation forever. And the thing that I wonder the most about is how Jason Aaron was able to convince Marvel, yes, why we have Blade and Damon Hellstrom (laughs) helping us exercise the ghosts out of the unpopular ghost rider. No, not the woman. I'm not crazy. But the unpopular ghost rider's car. Separately, we're going to have the agents of Wakanda doing a time travel story with a prehistoric Iron Man helmet. What the fuck is happening? I love how this book really has become a blueprint for every section of the Marvel Universe. It's like playing a massive MMORGP and somehow at the same time, Jason Aaron is is Dungeon Master. Especially that Tony storyline. I feel like Jason Aaron had just watched like the Star Trek Next Generation two-parter Times Arrow and was like, hmm, I wonder who I can send back and have a fossilized head. Let's do Tony Stark. The idea of Aaron writing the blueprint for so many parts of the Marvel Universe has really been central to this for my reading and it's something that I mention on this podcast every time for listeners because one of the things that I talk about with so many people who know about the existence of comics and Marvel but don't necessarily read and are interested is how difficult it is to get into, how they don't know where to begin, how there's always stuff they don't understand. And really when you think about it, if you set aside the X-Men and I have my own stuff for that, you kind of have to set aside Daredevil too. Externals, really quick 12 issue read, everything else. You can read this Avengers run and have a pretty great understanding of everything that's going on. But if you're like a beginner and you're interested in stuff that's going on, if you're coming from the MCU, this is the series to read. These are the issues to read. And from there, you can go to everything else feeling pretty strong and familiar. But to me, it's astounding the amount of... It's funny because there's not really a ton of exposition in that way where it's like, oh, I hate expository dialogue. But man, do you learn a lot in every single issue from the way the story unfolds. And does this prime you for understanding where the Marvel Universe is at today? And I really think it preps you for where it's going. And one of the places it's going is a better utilization of its past. I'm not here to judge anything in any way other than with my eyes right now. I know that I've liked things in the past. And I know that I am always here to talk about the technical merit of work that's come before. But there's times where it's really hard not to look at things like the 90s and cringe. The handling of characters as major things started to develop. You know, we talk a lot about Punky Brewster's friend getting trapped in a fridge. But we don't really talk about Karen Page getting AIDS. And that fucking 
fucking happen? And it was not handled all of the ways it needed to be. And one of the things I feel like Jason Aaron has spent so much time doing is finding a way to make things all right-ish. Even when the arc is to varying success, and I'm looking at you, a number of arcs that people haven't loved all of, I still think his intent is to repair what is essentially a damaged ship. Now, I felt he did that with Wolverine in the first place. He took all of the disparate versions of Wolverine and kind of united them. His Wolverine involved Samurai, Soldier, Western Hero, Headmaster, Superhero. And I feel like he's putting the sort of multiplicity back into Marvel Comics. Sure, it's all in one book, but he's giving us all of our choices in this one book because by the time we get to exploring the cave and we get the Iron Man mask and we're seeing the agents of Wakanda and we jump back to the Avengers mansion, I feel like I've experienced Asgard and the Hulks and the agents of Wakanda and Iron Man and the magic side of things and Ghost Rider. And you know what? I even kind of keep Blade and his own magic side of things kind of corner and Captain America's here. And it's a pretty cool Avengers lineup with Carol looking awesome. Like there is so much here. And finally, I don't feel like there's too many characters in the book. I feel like everybody's getting some page time. Yeah, I mean, I really feel that way too. I think it's okay to agree and establish that Avengers is going to be that that little piece of the North Pole where every single latitude line meets and there's just this space that like every country owns a tiny little slice. Even I mean, in the past, the X-Men have also been a part of that. Mutants have been a part of that. There have been mutants on the Avengers and I think there's room for them to come back. We've had externals. There is, the Avengers is that place where every type of hero eventually has to come help face a threat that is bigger than whatever their part of the Marvel Universe is. Aaron is capitalizing on that in a way that is, yeah, I mean, one of the big things it's able to do is, okay, you didn't know about this character. Here they are. Here's some shit about them that you'll probably hear about if you keep reading, and I'm going to fix it so that you can enjoy them now without them being weighed down by other writers and traditions of the past that we all agree need to be left in the past. The challenge of the Ghost Rider, he really was able to present Ghost Rider in a way that a lot of people would understand and sort of do it. And I think the way he went about the story was a little better because a little bit more streamlined. I think some of my main criticisms uh, and, and a lot of our main criticisms about the earlier arcs were like there were just too many characters just randomly jammed in. Like he would like we had the whole arc with Namor and his team versus the, you know, the Russian team versus the Avengers in like there's just way too much going on like yes at this point there are a lot of guests that come in but they at least kind of like stagger in they don't all come in at the same time and I think it lets us kind of like get some moments with each of the guests before we get thrown into the big mash and it doesn't seem as it seems a lot more fleshed out it doesn't seem as thrown together and one of the things that really hits for me is that it feels like there's such a clear plan when Danny appears at the end of this first issue when the exorcism has failed you know when we get the introduction of the hissing living gun okay I am such a person for magic uh, armament I love magical artillery I don't need guns in my comic books but if you're going to give me a breathing living wooden gun that is meant to destroy demon kind that's a really cool way to still get that iconography if you're someone for whom that iconography is an unavoidable me I just want war comics I don't care if you replace the plane with a pterodactyl i just want war comics i just like the structure i don't need the gun so if you can find ways to take 
magic elements and essentially make it that this is little more than a magic stick. This is little more than like a, an ancient eldritch scepter that he's going to blast people with. There's things about this that really allow the Marvel Universe to engage with old ideas and new ideas, updating characters. We're seeing two different ghost writers. I just think it's all a very brave attempt to never forget where we came from, but to always be moving forward. Speaking of always moving forward, I am so obsessed with these hazmat suits. Oh my god, they're so cute. I need... I need a Hellstrom hazmat suit because, yes, number one, I kept being like, who are these fascinating new magic soldier people? Oh, it's the Avengers. They're very cool. And then, <laughs> um, I. <laughs> I also really love Black Panther's role here. I'm devastated that I ultimately know Black Panther does depart the book in later years. But Black Panther in this Avengers run, you know, I'm not here for, by any means, saying that Black Panther should be written, you know, by white culture or anything, anything like that. But fuck, Jason Aaron writes a real good Black Panther. Well, and the great thing is, there's not too many characters in this book, but there's a ton of characters in this book. So Aaron is writing everybody. It is not on him to be responsible for the thrust and story of Black Panther's life, which should be left to an author that has a better understanding of where Black Panther comes from and has some similarities to Black Panther. On the other hand, it's really important that we acknowledge what an important character Black Panther is and how he would be a part of the team that is essentially protecting and leading the world. So, you know, this is kind of the compromise that you always want to find. And having a writer like Aaron put Black Panther on his team and write him is very important. You just don't ever want to see that go so far that he's the only person writing Black Panther and he's the one talking about experiences that Black Panther would have that he has no connection to. So this kind of works out perfectly because he really establishes how important Black Panther is to the world running smoothly. But he's never asked to do the kind of internal work that we probably don't need a white man writing a Black man for anymore. And I have to say, like, even outside of just Black Panther, he's done a pretty good job of the characters who have their own solo series, like giving them moments to shine, giving them really good insights into them, Black Panther, Carol, you know, Thor, but not really featuring their development in a way in Avengers that would maybe necessarily like override what's going on in their own solo books or, you know, negate anything that would have gone on there. I, I, I do like that love and respect for the characters. Like, like even Carol gets some fun moments where she gets to have some levity. And I do think it's an important storyline to see her develop these motherly feelings for Robbie Reyes but like you know it's not really pushing her story forward just the same as Black Panther same as Thor like we're really the push forwards we're getting really are the characters who serve in this book like Robbie Reyes you know and some of Blade so far and then you know Hulk to Herger so like it's really been cool to see the focus on the characters that you you that need the focus rather than the other. and the thing that this book gives us is well it gives us two things it gives us important and defined focus on characters who because one of the things that you can't do as well in a solo book that you can do in a book like this is you learn a lot from a person seeing them one-on-one and getting that intimate relationship and then when you see that person in a group you get a whole new perspective on them and that's something that a title like Avengers allows for certainly number one and the other thing I think this book gives us is a record number of flaming skull heads attached to armor and you know Tony Stark dude 
I've never realized how badly I want you to be replaced by Ghost Rider, but there is something so fucking funny about flaming Iron Man heads. That that's all I want anymore. And between that and the incredible sequences of Robbie and Danny in hell, there is so much focus on the iconography and the identity of what a Ghost Rider is, whether it's showing us 1, mi- one million BC, Noble Kale, or the 90s. We get a really good <laughs> sense of Ghost Rider. And I would love to get your guys' take on all things Vengeums. Hate you for Vengeums. I am Vengeums. I've never really been a huge Ghost Rider fan, right? I picked up some, and mainly they were in the 90s when we can all agree maybe the quest quality was a lot more questionable. Having having gone back and read some of, like, you know, the old Johnny Blaze stuff, there's a really a lot of cool stuff that they did in early Ghost Rider. So, like, never having Ghost Rider really imprint on me that much. I, I love seeing uh, Robbie Reyes as a, you know, as a good audience stand-in for Ghost Rider for seeing you know like what it would be like to live in this world and it's, and it's making it fascinating to me and like i don't necessarily understand johnny blaze's motivation in this whole arc but it seems very true to his character because you know they, everybody seems to think he's a big jerk no. i am on a ghost rider journey right now that started with Nico convincing me to read some books that I was adamantly sure I would not enjoy and I saw no point in reading, which were basically all of the Kushala Infinity comics and a couple supplementary issues. And then, of course, Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme, at the end of which I became obsessed with Kushala and am suddenly a Ghost Rider fan, which is something I'm working out personally and with my therapist. But now I'm like peeking through old stuff. I'm reading the current Ghost Rider issue. I'm in challenge of the Ghost Riders, and I know a lot of what's happening. Also, a thing that I want to point out, Noble Kale, Naomi Kale is the mother of Danny and Johnny. So I just thought that was a funny little reference. I find myself seeing so much potential for the Ghost Rider mythos to shift and maybe evolve a little bit to move past the kind of, I mean, like at the end of the day, my problem with Ghost Rider, and it remains my problem now, even though I'm really getting into it, is the evil Knievel cheesiness of stunt bikers possessed by demons. Like it just looks like a patch on somebody's leather coat at an amusement park in the middle of the summer. There's something about it that I'm just like, this concept is not cool. And the mythos really often will play into that in a way where I'm just like, is this a Metallica cover? I don't really understand what I'm supposed to get into about this. But then you take a character like Kushala, who comes out of that same mythos, and suddenly it all works. And I just want to believe that there is more here than the spirit of vengeance, who sometimes really helps a person do the right thing and make things right and other times is just like cutting a swath of misery through the world and there's no real system of understanding to it and there's no way to reckon with it or make a larger metaphor out of it you really need to go deep into the characters to get there but i think there is something to the idea of a faustian bargain and this concept of writing of like finding a mode of conveyance that becomes this thing for you and you know our cars as an extension of ourselves or people who are bike people who their bike is an extension of themselves there's something cool there like that's a very human experience and to turn it supernatural is really special and you know we see other ghost riders in this arc 
seeing Ghost Rider take over the Celestial, seeing the 1 million BC Ghost Rider with the Mammoth, that idea of the means of conveyance being a part of a person's soul and the magic that can make them a superhero, that's the thing that I come back to really loving about Ghost Rider, and I'm always kind of wanting to see tackled more. I think in some ways we get a taste of that here, in other ways we get a lot of hell stuff, which, again, sometimes it's a little corny to me, but I'm also kind of seeing with Mephisto and other elements how the hell stuff and the fantasy horror stuff that is baked into Marvel is being brought to the fore through Ghost Rider storylines and I do see a lot of potential there. That might be the most lovely anyone's ever spoken on Ghost Rider. I'm just saying. It's a complicated thing. I'm very into it. Yeah, I am for some reason into Cosmic Ghost Rider a lot. (laughs) And he literally started as someone's tattoo. Yeah! Literally, Donny Cates saw someone's tattoo of that and was like, I'll make it a character. I am not a Punisher fan. The only two versions of Punisher I even like are Cosmic Ghost Rider and Frankencastle. I love taking the idea of Punisher and just punishing the fuck out of him and like making him a totally separate character. Cosmic Ghost Rider is fun to me. He's annoying as hell, but he's really fun. I like that he's needlessly OP. And then in the next arc, we have a bunch of heralds and he didn't show up because this isn't his story. And that's not what Jason Aaron is seeking to do. Because, yeah, you know, Ghost Rider, Cosmic Ghost Rider, who, you know, one of the things is he is like, let's call him what he is. He's a Frankie Stew. He's the Punisher and he's the Ghost Rider and he's got the power Cosmic and his dad was Thanos. So, you know. Like, I would not root for him at all. I feel like he should star on whatever the hell his universe's version of Girls is. He is really fucking annoying on paper. And then he shows up and he is so ridiculous that it's, you know, when I see the dead celestial start to cry blood, I'm like, this should be dumb. It's not. It makes (laughs) it kind of... so great. That was the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Unfortunately for every one of those, there's a code 666, which doesn't work for me quite as much. That's a little bit more the monster mash and i'm looking for a little bit more clive barker so like you know there's there's some places where it doesn't doesn't work i also just want to say you know boy thing gets some pretty cool power-ups here whether it's taking control of the celestial or it's giving you know cosmic ghost rider a run for his money boy thing you're earning some like you know young man thing stat I, that's not better i really love the character boy thing he's so fun like he doesn't even have to talk and I love how Carmudgeon Blade just is utterly in love with this this man thing root <laughs> cutling and uh, yeah, just, clipping like, as clipping. he's referred to. Yeah. Yeah. That is like, you know, it's a good fun moment and yeah, I love it. And Boy Thing is a great example of the thing that I keep talking about that was brought up earlier. A lot of people might be aware that there is a weird swamp thing creature in Marvel. They probably think it is swamp thing. They don't know that it's man thing, that's a different thing, and that they all came up around the same time. It's very confusing. What do you expect me to do? Do you want me to go read 70s Man-Thing books? I'm not going to do that. So not only are we starting just in general fresh in this book, but this is literally a young new version of the Man-Thing character that if you are just generally aware that this is a thing that exists start here and learn about this character and follow them into other stories that are going to involve Man-Thing and you are you know everything you need to know. Not only do we have that really smart set 
setup for the future here, but then we create a character who is just adorable and funny and cute. And, you know, we're going to see in the next arc, he brings uh, Black Widow a rose and it's just a really sweet little moment. He says nothing and yet has so much personality and then sometimes just is the world's biggest badass. What a great character to follow. If you told me that there was any kind of boy thing related story coming out, I would automatically pick it up 100%. And it is really just based so far on 26 issues. I would love him to team up with Artie and Leech. I know that that's my go-to every little kid book ever, but Artie, Leech, if there could be like um, a Beta Ray Billy like if for no reason Beta Ray Bill has a little baby android pony child, I would love that as well. <laughs> just, just give me what I want, okay? As <laughs> no, that that makes sense because wasn't Man Thing in the Daydreamers? Yes, yeah. he was in Daydreamers. Yeah. Yes, Daydreamers. yes, he was, and that's why I want it. Yeah, I was like, oh my god, that's such a cool forgotten book. Like Artie Leach, Man Thing, Howard the Duck, and Franklin Richards. Franklin like- Richards, yeah, <laughs> guys, I fucking I love yeah. It's that thing of, I thought I loved this book. And now I talk about it with you guys. And now I love this book. There is a, there's an element of comics that I kind of feel like maybe we don't talk about as much because it's not a tangible element. And sometimes it can be really hard to have discussions about non-tangible concepts. But one of the things that is like a defining moment of my life is when I worked at a comic shop. That year was one of the best years of my life because I got to talk about books every day, all day. And it's where I got to get my hands on, you know, Miracle Man. It would come through the door and the owner knew I was looking for it and he would help me out and he would like you know sell them to me he would still make a fucking profit but like he would sell them to me much cheaper than I should have been able to get and like I would get my hands on old trades and like the community of discussing a book and hearing that I would like if Boy Thing got an Infinity comic that would be a perfect fit and he could slide into the next panel by sliding down the side of the screen like there's things where I have those feelings and I have this show and sometimes I still feel in a vacuum on them. And so the the idea of this Avengers book being the place where we can all show up and kind of grab a drink is one of the things about this book that I love the most. And it's one of the like, it's going to sound so stupid, but sometimes this feels like an after show for this comic. I feel like we are the talking dead for Jason Aaron's <laughs> Avengers. And inexplicably, it's got a little bit of classic MTV's Undressed in there. I don't know why, but it does. And Boys. it's a hot tub. And why not? So it's, I don't know. I love the community that this book fosters truly i wish everybody could have something as good as talking about something this fun with people and i think it's a book that warrants doing that for new fans and old because i having knowledge of a lot of the marvel universe i'm still finding a lot of stuff in this book and then when i hear you guys talk i'm learning more stuff about origins like potential future paths and stuff like that and for for fans this is yeah this is really kind of a communal gathering spot and you know even though the X-Men are pretty separate from this most of the time, as are the Eternals, we know those things are coming together very soon, like literally later this month. And also, this book contains some of the really important elements for connecting these three parts of the universe. So even though at this point, Krakoa is kind of doing its own thing, mostly separately, that doesn't really interact with most of these stories in a substantive way, we're getting there as well. Like, the connectedness is becoming, is coming together. So to sit 
sit back in the lounge of Avengers and not just absorb this book, but yeah, if you can find community in it, in talking to other readers and listening to podcasts like this one, it's, this is a fan maker and it's a, it's a fandom touchstone. And I think we're left on our own to create a lot of those. We create them online in spaces like Twitter and Discord. And that's great. That's part of what fandom is. We all have to empower ourselves and find our tribe. But when an author like Jason Aaron, who has really proven that they will go the distance in terms of planning, in terms of story arc, in terms of committing to a long-term vision, gives you something that can really facilitate your own fandom and I think really community fandom as well. That is a gift that's kind of on another scale. And I really encourage everybody to embrace it. I'm so glad that we've done this project and I've reread those arcs that had initially turned me off and I've been reading some of these arcs for the first time, rereading all these arcs. And I'm like, you know, like, do I always love some of the ideas, some of the ways he goes? No, but I think that they are so out there, out of the box that like, I'm kind of glad that, you know, he tried with all these ideas and like, it's, there's so much fun in these issues and there's so, so much that's fun, goofy, bombastic, and there's really some actually good character moments hid in between all those really fun, goofy, fun, bombastic moments that I'm kind of like, okay, cool. Like we should all be talking about this more and, and positively instead of, you know, I, I you always see a lot of hate for the Phoenix arc, which we'll get to <laughs> once you suspend your disbelief for the ridiculousness of the 1 billion BC Avengers. Like they really are kind of a fun long game character group to get to know more about. And I'm just excited to see where a lot of these stories that I've loved in recent years have springboarded off. And, you know, I agree with you, Nathan. I haven't really always liked all of the plot beats or the particular points or views on a character. If they told me, what are you going to do for these issues? I would have not done Enter the Phoenix. But setting that all aside, when I read the stuff that I don't like as a whole or connected to the stories that it came from or go to, the one thing that I will say is I could not come up with a better way to get from point A to point Z than the stops that Aaron makes along the way, some of which I don't like. So, you know, there are times where I'm like, I probably would have done it like this and that that would have been better. And those are times where I get a little critical, but Aaron is doing stuff that I, even if I'm like, I don't like that, that's not how I see that character. I can honestly not say that I could have written something that would get the story where it needs to go. And that's just yet another part of his authorial process that really impresses me. I also like to liken him to a Chris Claremont or yeah. a Wheezy Simonson in the way he sees a grand design and you can always tell when Wheezy's on a book or, you know, Anne Nesenti, who has returned to Daredevil through Elektra and Typhoid Mary after so many years. You can see Jason Aaron's love of Thor shine through in all of the neat tricks Thor gets to do that no one else gets to do. Carol comes in and punches something. Okay, She-Hulk either explodes or charges Thor. And Thor does stuff like gets the head of the cosmic ghost rider stuck on Mjolnir Mjolnir's hull. Like, that's amazing. Gets to do a gamma-powered Mjolnir blast. That's amazing. Like, you can see the ways in which Aaron's own personal experiences as a Marvel creator clearly influence what he does and the ways in which he interacts with the page. I do think that there are places that we are still bound by the confines of a standard 22-page big two 
superhero comic. And in that, I mean, we just saw a the most powered she's ever been, She-Hulk, power Thor, who by this art, I'm guessing has to be King Thor era Odin Force post-War of the Realms Thor, pre-Kate's run. So going by the lack of, you know, the mullet, no. I'll say that that's probably what it is. So we're seeing two mega Avengers at the fucking top of their game. And then we're seeing Carol, who is the mega Avenger, and she is always at the top of your game. Don't ever let her hear you say otherwise. Uh-huh. And the three of them fucking wail on Cosmic Ghost Rider. But you know what takes Cosmic Ghost Rider down? You know what stops him? Black Panther and Captain America punching him at the same time. Uh powered up by Avengers Mountain. <laughs> I do know that they're powered by Avengers Mountain. I do, and I'm not coming for it, but there's a, a lack of dynamism to, it's a punch that takes him out. But like, when we've already had the hammer going through his head and he comes and the skull comes back on the handle, haven't we just at that point kind of decided that cool is cool and fun is fun and the plot will move as the plot needs to? Yeah, I, I think that that's all you can do with this Avengers run sometime is like, just go along with the ride and because he's not gonna then follow that up with let me let me lay out the rules for you for why cap and black panther are actually stronger than carol thor and jen it's just it's like if he was trying to do that stuff and be like you don't understand they're powered by the america force and the wakanda force and those (laughs) then i would be like burn this thing to the ground but he was just like no this will look cool and we already gave thor the coolest moment in this book so we got to just move on with this cosmic ghostwriter shit so these two dudes just come up and punch him and then we go back to hell you know i'm absolutely somebody who is guilty of being like no 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 that's not right for some reason this book gets every single pass because I think it knows when it has to take itself seriously and when to just let something happen. And even if it's a stupid move, like especially when it's a stupid move, you just let it happen and then move right past it. We're not going to talk about it or justify it. That's just what we did. Wolverine comes charging in with the Canada Force, and the three of them do like a big bro, like a big bro handshake, and they assemble the United Nations gauntlet, and it is really something else. All right, I'm gonna fucking capitulate. I guess perhaps. Just maybe there was enough to talk about in Challenge of the Ghost Rider (laughs) that we're not going to get to Starbrand Reborn. That's what this book is. This book is an opportunity to talk about so much. And I think about the ways in which this book remains incredibly prescient. Every time we open it, all of a sudden, there's a cool as guardian boat just flying through hell. Like, that's not the thing that just opened this past weekend. Not as guardian boats flying through hell, the movie. But rather, actually, kind of. Yeah. Thor. Oh, uh, yeah. Hello. <laughs> so, you know, it's so, so much to think about that this book is at the same time as giving us things like the final host and then Namor raising aggressive oceanographers. That's, yeah. that doesn't paint. Okay. I like it. And we get the tie ins for more of the realms and we see all the stuff that's going on with the Winter Guard. I need to know how you feel about that hammer go. <laughs> I love it. Actually, I'm I am here for like toolbox god to come through and be like, and you get a hammer, you get a screwdriver, I've got a box of nails for you. And I am just giving out magical weapons. You know, I think one of the things that every hero doesn't need is a gimmick, but because so many heroes do wind up in situations where they do have like a, a physical item for Wolverine, it's the claws, for Scott, it's the visor, for Ileana, it's the sword. 
sword. For Cable, it's the metal arm and a giant gun. Like, there are conventions that go with the visual of a character. For Scarlet Witch, it became her headpiece, you know? I never mind a character having a cool, silly even, accessory. Because one of the things that it gives you is a fucking flaming Thor hammer made out of car parts. Yeah. Every day. Every fucking day. I'm gonna I'm gonna give that to Robbie Reyes, and I'm gonna cosplay that. Every fucking day. You should. It's, it's beautiful. It deserves to be cosplayed. Like, ah, uh, And like, just previous Ghost Riders in their various different state of temporally appropriate regalia. I'm so glad you brought that up, because is a Ghost Rider power serving fashion? What if <laughs> these are... I love the, the like the little kid with the newsy cap and the spiked yes. hammer. Like, there's just so many looks on this one page. I was screaming about it, and I just that's my new like. And it's you know when you factor in Kushala, like part of the Ghost Rider mission is you have to serve a look. Yeah, I definitely need Ghost Rider Drag Race now more right. than anything. And it literally that's it's both new you meaning do, to dead drop. You do the hour of <laughs> one way walk, and then the queens that survive that. Do an actual drag race. <laughs> yeah, an actual drag race. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the fucking You truth. shall think for your life, literally. Marvel, call us. We're ready to write this anytime. Oh my gosh. And it's the fact that we have seen Ghost Rider go from like actually kind of silly and over the top and even by 70s standards, kind of campy right off the bat to this incredibly blended thing where it is kind of campy. It is kind of fashion. It is kind of cool. It's actually got some historical context. Like who thought that we would get like legitimate historical context from Ghost Rider titles? And I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, Garth Ennis has a PhD in Native American studies. Please do not believe that I am saying that I think the story of Kushala as it's laid out in Ghost Rider lore is like definitive. But it's something that we see that we probably don't get as much from X-Men comics, that we get to talk about the plight of indigenous peoples, not just, oh, look, some indigenous inclusion. And I don't know, Ghost Riders have a lot to offer, more than say, the Hulks do. Like, no one's shitting on the Hulk here, but I don't think to myself, God, that legacy of parents beating you. Wow. You know, it's not like a magical, although I have a lot of questions about why the star brand looks like a Hulk. And I know we're going to get into it next time, but it does make me think that like, you know, rage magic exists and that's a whole nother thing to get into. But like vengeance and the spirit of justice is so much more than just rage. And there is a strangely titillating quality to what if you were just a flaming skull? that could get away with doing justice to all of the wrongs you see and never having to feel bad about it. Like, I'm not saying I'm about to go on a vigilante spree because I also think there's incredibly scintillating things about being Captain America and about being any number of heroes who we're meant to be able to, at least for that moment, imagine ourselves. And that's where Robbie comes in for me because I can't see myself as a Danny or as a Johnny. But man, I can't believe we're talking about the Ghost Riders like they're the fucking Lantern Corps and you get to pick your flaming skull and your ride vehicle. This is the kind of thing that Jason Aaron has given us through this Avengers title that really challenges the notion of, I think, what this Avengers title is seen as from the outside world. Now, ultimately, the fact that Robbie wins feels maybe a little underserved. It's not that it's not a good win. It's not that it's not an exciting win, but the win feels very, and now it happened because we knew it had to happen and we have to get to the end of the issue. He, of course, abdicates the throne of hell because 
because that is not the journey that this incredible Robbie Reyes story is going on. Instead, of course, we see him now anchoring his own title in the pages of Avengers Forever. And this somehow does and doesn't set up the new Ghost Rider book. And I don't know. It just seems kind of like the Ghost Rider stuff ends. How do you guys feel about the ending of the Ghost Rider arc here? Well, it sets up the Ghost Rider book that comes in between this and Ben Percy's. Oh, thanks for reminding me. Which doesn't wrap up. But there's a moment where he goes after Mephisto and literally pulls his Vegas cage with the bike and like takes Mephisto away. So I thought that was really interesting with all this. It's actually really unfortunate because that that book was doing stuff that was really tied into all that. You know, as we keep saying, this book ties into every part of the Marvel Universe. And if you read it, you can go to the next thing. There was a Ghost Rider book that was the next thing about both Johnny Blaze and Danny Ketch. And, you know, honestly, it's not amazing, but it was doing stuff. And unfortunately, it got canceled smack dab in the middle of it. And we're on a new one now that I think has some really beautiful style and ideas about horror and how horror relates to the Ghost Rider genre written by Ben Percy that I think is really fantastic in some artistic ways. But it just does not appear to be going the distance as a title that's going to revolutionize Ghost Rider readership. That's a tough thing to pull off for any author. So that is not a diss on Ben Percy. But yeah, I mean, Ghost Rider, man, they're still in the Ghost Rider universe is still in the mix. The next thing we're all waiting for with bated breath is Kushala and Midnight Suns. I really have to believe that that could be a shining moment and get us some more Ghost Rider stories. Yep, I'm down to learn more about these avatars of the Spirit of the Vengeance, just like Moon Knight's, Jed McKay's Moon Knight got me excited to learn more about the avatars of the Fist of Conchu. So, like, I'm taking these modern interpretations of these characters and, you know, making them something that we want to read instead of, like, oh, I guess we have to read that. So, like, now I'm like, ooh, I want to read. Now, I'm not coming for any part of this book at all, but if there was a part that I'm kind of like, oh, this had to be here, not I'm excited that it's here, but I guess it had to be here. It's kind of the Tony Stark ending. I understand that the nature of publishing as it exists is outside of the scope of the writer's control. And that's in part because we are super beholden to certain ideas. It's something that I see as a creator trying to create books in a parallel sense of things. There's things that are Marvel exclusive and DC exclusive that you don't need to do if it's an indie comic such that you could kind of splinter off the Tony Stark thing into its own thing. You could purposely run eight pages long if you wanted, as long as you didn't mind paying for the printer. And Marvel books can't do that. They are strictly beholden to how long the trade was already agreed to be. It's very rare that during the production of an arc, you can just suddenly start throwing things out and changing things because printing considerations, time management, artist management, talent design, like all of that goes into the planning stages. So you can't just pull a fast one and change things easily at the last minute. So I get that the Tony Stark stuff and the, you know, Cosmic Ghost Riders just kind of like flies off into the night like, I'll be back! Like some <laughs> sort of weird production of Peter Pan where he's like, oh, I'm not in this scene, sorry! And they just pull him away by the strings. And then we get this 
Iron Man ending, which I'm cool with because I like what it does for Iron Man ultimately. But I resent that free comic book day 2019 was included at the back of the previous volume. And this volume gets a reprint of all new Ghost Rider number one. While I am very excited for the story that gave us Robbie Reyes to be reprinted, it is not the best Robbie arc from that volume. It is not the best Robbie volume in general. And it doesn't enhance the story because it actually kind of pulls from stuff that is not the best depiction of Robbie. So although I would watch Trad more draw anything for the rest of my goddamn life forever. How do you guys feel about the placement of Free Comic Book Day, which again, the stuff in Free Comic Book Day is from the last page of volume five and the bulk of volume six, yet it's the end of volume four. As a matter of fact, I actually think the Free Comic Book Day story could replace the first four issues of the Starbrand arc for the most part because <laughs> it is such a complete look at the arc. Yeah, if you took the other stories out and just used that page time to similarly cut the other stuff to get it in there, mostly for setup, you are absolutely right. So yours is at the end because you bought yours, right? Yes, so yeah. I'm referring to the digital and I believe first print trade of this volume of Avengers. It ends on vo- Avengers 25 and then includes all new Ghost Rider number one. Right? Yeah, the digital does include that. Yeah. yeah, I did not understand when I was reading the free comic book day stuff that it was going to be what came up in the Starbrand arc, which in some ways was a fun surprise, but was kind of more confusing than anything else because I was really under the impression that that was like a weird, like, what if ultimate team? And then all of a sudden I'm looking at Cap and like partially Corsair's unit. <laughs> The uh, idea, what was on that ship like and did he did people do fashion work while they were there like, was there a sewing machine there's two options one that corsair christopher summers had a captain america-esque version of his outfit that he would sometimes wear damn hepzibah you're having a fun night or two they stopped in the midst of all this and pulled a look together for captain america i don't know which i love more but they're both very stupid so yeah this uh <laughs> This was a a very odd setup for a person who just like has been reading in and out of this and never quite knows where I am, but always by the end of an arc understands everything that was confusing me before that. I am still not convinced on Starbrand very broadly as an idea, as an integral part of the Marvel Universe. I've been feeling this way since before Secret Wars, so I'm really going to need somebody to do the work to get me there. It might be in this, but having seen the creepy baby star brand in the external stuff i'm kind of doubting it um but as always even the stuff that is stupid that confuses me that i don't understand why it's there how it's there i still managed to have some fun with it cap looks sexy as hell in scott summers's dad's clothes Yeah, I have to say the inclusion of the Free Comic Book Day in the previous volumes arc was so confusing because, like, when I got to finally got to reading the Star Brand, I was like, wait, hold on. This is actually, I read these pages before. I was like, oh, yeah, it was the Free Comic Book Day thing that we covered, the, like, not this time, but the last time before. I was like, that is so such weird placement. It would have been a lot better to have the placement be either with this arc or with the Star Brand arc in the 
collected trade because it just make more sense and like the whole getting the part of the tony story here was okay cool it's good to see it and like the, the star jammers avengers stuff was fun to see but until we get the little bit of the explanation i was just so confused by it i was like why is he captain corsair and why is captain marvel binary again etc etc well until we come back to answer these incredible questions i just want to thank you guys again for you know what was probably the most surprising discussion of avengers for me because i came into this being like oh you know this is a cute robbie story but i'm starting to feel like a lot of these arcs could be handled by a really badass annual but then you would lose all of the character development and that would wind up getting put off in a mini series which jason aaron would probably write most of the time and but then why would i buy it that way why wouldn't i just buy it well but now i'm kind of wondering like why aren't we getting avengers the final host the annual followed by a three issue final host mini series like it's just an interesting place to be and i'm really excited to see how the stories continue to unfold even if it is sometimes feeling like there are beats missing i feel like i'm getting not just my money's worth but my story's worth for loving the marvel universe the way that i do yeah there's really something to be said about a contained excess this book is chaos there's always tons happening it's very confusing sometimes simple publishing issues like putting a free comic book day at the end of one arc where it really refers to an arc two arcs later is messy but it is all pretty much contained within the pages of jason aaron's avengers in very discreet arcs that make it pretty easy to sit down and read a story that while in the midst of it might get a little confusing like i said by the end i'm kind of like okay i get where we are on to the next crazy adventure and in a lot of ways i really do prefer this and i really feel confident recommending this rather than saying oh you know okay so you want to read the first five issues of avengers but from there there's a spin-off Thor story and that's got a really good arc so you want to read that but make sure you read the first two issues of Captain America before you read that that's what we do as fans we end up doing that a lot of the time and it's something that you know it takes a little bit of work and skill to do and sometimes it is nice and frankly impressive for the author to be able to put all of that in one book and if it is not going to win you know a, a Nobel Prize for literature it's still going to be a damn good time and really allow you to bond with both characters and whole parts of a universe. Hey everybody, Nico here. And I'm TK. And so we just had an amazing Avengers segment and, you know, such a blast talking Avengers with Nathan. And it's so interesting that that segment of Avengers, as we said in the segment, sort of acted as a portent of what was to come. TK, you and I have been covering Ghost Rider and Punisher for months now. Pretty funny coincidence that we have these two books to cover and this Avengers arc where we're getting the literal combination of of Punisher and Ghost Rider felt like some important synchronicity. And the fact that two titles are inexplicably both on their fourth issue and, you know, okay, I'll admit, it's probably not so much of a stretch that the same writers kind of cycle the same characters, that your Wolverine and your Punishers and your Ghost Riders, that they all kind of share a writing staff, that clicks for me. So it makes a lot of sense that we're going to talk about two guys who are known for their Wolverine and Wolverine on a team book. 
book. That means we're talking Jason Aaron over on the pages of Punisher with an incredible artistic team consisting of Jesus Says, Paul Azaceda, Dave Stewart, and VCs Corey Pettit. While over in the pages of Ghost Rider, we have Ben Percy, current Wolverine scribe, and the incredible art team of Corey Smith, Oren Jr., Brian Valenza, and VCs Travis Lanham. Okay, it is weird that they can both spit fire out of their faces, right? It's a little weird, but I like it more on Punisher. Well, with Punisher, it feels more like it's significant that this is happening, where with Ghost Rider, it's just kind of another Tuesday. Okay, I'll accept that. I want to start with this issue of Punisher comes hot on the heels of the amazing Torin Grunbeck penned Punisher one-shot, and I do not have any great love for the characters that get a spotlight here, but holy shit, this issue of Punisher banged for me. I love that the plot here is kind of like, they're afraid that they're not pushing Frank far enough, so they push him really far, they torture a bunch of people's families and kill them, which is the opposite of what Frank wants. Like, I'm telling you, the Hand and its High Priestess are really, they're kind of torturing Frank the way I've always wanted someone to torture Frank for the ways Frank tortures some actually not bad people because the Punisher's morality compass is not flaws. Well, and a funny spin that this book seems to be doing on the trope of the good guy who takes up the bad machine thinking that he can turn that machine around and do something good with it, or if he's the one running the bad machine, he can make sure it doesn't do certain types of evil. Obviously, the most famous version of this for a lot of people is Angel, where in the fifth season, they go and run the evil law firm that has been, you know, fighting them the entire previous four seasons. The interesting thing here is the hand doesn't really seem to have much of a plan for corrupting Frank because they don't really see him as a good guy and a hero that needs to be corrupted or if they can just envelop him in their machinations he will you know finally go the way of the dark side they already basically think he's evil and a child of the beast and they're just trying to figure out what is the best way to please him and make this all work whereas Frank really does think he's doing something here and like he's got a whole ass plan and increasingly it is so clear that he has less than no clue what he's doing and the hand is really just going to keep doing the worst shit they can think of until they feel like they've hit the jackpot with him you know I know it's not the case at all but there's this weird feeling I'm starting to get that Leah Michelle is the punisher <laughs> and funny girl is the hand or something I don't know you know she's she's on a weird trajectory but back to the story I mean I feel like Beanie Feldstein would be the punisher in this case and Leah Michelle is the actual person that is the child of the beast that is supposed to be here that we don't know who it is yet I, I can't stop I love this too much and I guess that so and that's what you missed on Glee so I also real quick pause for real life stuff Neil Adams what a loss uh, devastating and it was great to see both this beautiful tribute and the lovely quote from Bill Sienkiewicz and I really appreciate getting that here that said it's a little juxtaposition disorientation kind of stuff that I'm not crazy about where it goes from you know oh god remember Neil Adams to Punisher's foot when he was a kid let's kill some shit and I feel maybe like that was not the place to put the incredible flashback pages that I look forward to every month yeah it's always a tough thing because when you put the tribute to a lost creator at the front you guarantee that everybody has to flip past it and at least take a second if you put it at the end you risk 
risk that people will just kind of wash over it and not really notice. But it does end up being jarring in a way that I sort of wonder, you know, if we're going to pay tribute to a great creator, we should probably be in the mindset where we are doing it voluntarily and not in one where, you know, we might start to think about them, then flip the page, then we're in child murderer zone and there's some cognitive dissonance. There really is, especially when this book's focus on loss and the fundamental workings of loss, right? Because the thing that I want to touch back to that you said early on that I loved the most, perhaps, is if Frank is already evil by the hand's determination, then it's sort of as though the evil was always there and he found ways to channel it. He thought that maybe this time he'd be lucky. Maybe this time. She, and we're just going to go through like every fucking song Leah Michelle's ever sang, I guess. Uh, oh, man. You know, and again, one more time. Anytime they cast a really talented Sally, I'm like, you guys missed the point of the play. <laughs> anyway, and you know, in that regard, Punisher is Sally, you know? He's not very good, but God, he'll, he'll get the job done. And it's almost as if the hand sees this as Frank should have gone full tilt super murderer a while back, but losing his wife and kids didn't push him far enough. I wonder if at this point they're going to kill Maria to like re-spark his most evil desires. And then as he's murdering and becoming the beast and it takes him over and blah, blah, blah. But what if they've given him his family back to take them away again? Because it really seems like this book is still about loss. Yeah, I think we all know that this cannot end with Frank getting his wife and kids back. So the fact that we have his wife and seemingly a plan for his kids to return, we are already looking at this can't go well. And the thing that we see in this issue is that the hand and its arch priestess really will do anything to further their goals and to make people into the best killers possible, to wreak as much death as possible. That is all that they want. And what they show in this issue is that killing families to them sometimes is the best way to mold their soldiers into better killers. And Frank quickly becomes concerned that they're going to start feeling the same way about him because he is not producing results in the way that they want. This to me is kind of offset by Frank's actual plot in this, which is a fight to the death with Lady Bullseye and Lord Deathstrike, in which Frank is successful and surprises those two characters in being so because they don't think he's up to the task and ultimately he proves that he is. You can see all the directions that it can go in. Knowing Aaron, I really do think they could surprise us and not give us just, you know, Frank and his family survive to a certain point or they get killed and he goes crazy, but some option that we're not really expecting that shows us that Frank's flirtation with being somebody that the Hand would really love is more important to who he is as a character than he is allowing himself to believe. And there's a lot of levels to it that the point of we're surprised and Frank's surprised, there's kind of an interesting parallel there. I am fascinated by all sorts of things in this book. Everybody having to pray to Ares, first of all, you pray to that big man. Second of all, I think about old war moves and like old war movie quotes and stuff where people say like, you know, some godless land and some place where they don't even believe in Jesus and like all this sort of hyper Judeo-Christian white propaganda that, you know, movies used to throw in there. And it's so interesting that that's the way in which the hand soldiers are felled because Frank's still not about the prayers. So with that in mind, it's like Frank is still missing the point and Aaron is 
finding interesting ways to show us that maybe we are too. Having Ares and the Archpriestess talk was really a turning point in making it clear that this is not as simple as it appears to be. And it appears to be pretty complex in and of itself. But being a god of death and being a god of war are clearly not as dissimilar as the sides of this battle as they've been set up in the previous four issues would lead us to believe. And I think Ares seeing Frank as one of his own uh, disciples prior to this really instills in the reader that there is a blurred line. War means death and death is intrinsic to what Frank has been doing this whole time in a way that isn't just like, oh, so obviously he should be working for the hand, but that death is more complicated than just let's do as much as possible. And Ares, the god of war, being so much more present than the hand's god, it seems to be a really important part of dissecting what it means to worship death and what it means to worship war. Because it also leads to the question of how can a cycle exist without some of its parts? It doesn't sound to me like Ares gains power from death. It sounds to me like Ares gains power from continued conflict. But if the beast of the hand gets its way, there is no conflict. There is simply subjugation and defeat. In that regard, this issue has very little to offer by way of nuanced plot. The nuances are all character, and the plot is very on the beat. We see Frank isn't going deep enough. The Archpriestess sets up a situation whereby her own people are used as pawns, which that's what the hand is into. Everybody wants to die for the beast. So it works for them. Frank ultimately comes to realize that maybe this price is greater than he thought after he discovers that the soldiers kidnapped by Ares into praying to him, who the Archpriestess insisted on having executed, whose lives were spared by Punisher, have been turned into Punisher's elite kill squad after Archpriestess had their families tortured and killed in front of them. This ultimately leads Frank to realize it's time to go a little late. And that could have been done in like eight pages, but instead, one of the things that this title seeks to do is create moments of beautiful character development. It's what makes this not some four-part, eight-page story in four issues of Marvel Comics Presents back in 1993. This isn't just, what if Frank got death powers? You know, which is the sort of like Midnight Suns kind of fucking acts of vengeance bullshit we might have seen. Well, or even, you know, Cosmic Ghost Rider. Even Cosmic Ghost Rider. Instead, we're getting a really important look at the ways in which the Punisher convinces himself he's not the thing that everyone is showing him a mirror that he is. If there is a reason that Ares seems to maybe not think that Frank looks so cute in the hand hockey jersey, it's probably because Frank has always been an agent of war. You can't take away his best dog, not in the middle of the fight. I don't know that Ares truly believes that Punisher is a good man, or if he's just sowing further conflict. I don't think it matters to Ares whether Punisher is a good man or not, but just that he is his man, that he has been... Frank has viewed himself for basically since the beginning of his introduction as a character as someone who is fighting a war. And, you know, it's a very war on crime metaphor, war on drugs. Frank is this warrior who sees himself as being the only one who will do what is necessary to stop the greater evil, including being what he considers the lesser evil. And for Ares, that makes him a a scion of war. And it doesn't, there's no moral judgment to it. All Ares cares about is 
that conflict continues. And Frank was really good for that. You make a great point in that the hand isn't interested in the conflict. They're interested in what happens at the end, which is the death. And if they do their jobs right, they can skip the conflict and just do the death. And I think Frank is, you know, I hate this expression, but trying to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to be fighting this war, but he really wants to use the hand to circumvent the actual fighting of the war and just be as efficient at killing everybody who he thinks is wrong as possible. And there's just, we know that that is not possible. We know that he has to confront the effects of what he does and he will have to actually put up a fight. And when that happens, all of his morals get called into question and the this, this is the conflict that he has to have. Because I believe the Punisher's need for vengeance on the idea of crime is very different than the Ghost Rider's need for vengeance on the idea of almost impure thought. And I wonder if that's what Ares is almost getting at. Left unchecked, Punisher will just become a relentless killing machine and he will start killing people before they can do bad. He will start minority reporting people. And that's a thing. Whereas Ghost Rider kind of turns the things you've done back on you. I'm not saying that the spirit of vengeance or perhaps a particularly handsome Latino all-rider can't perhaps burn you with your own potential badness. But Ghost Rider's shtick is you did a no-no, a very particular no-no. Your bad was a personal bad and now you will suffer for it. Whereas the Punisher just kind of wants to shoot things. Yeah, and I think you make a really good point. The Punisher left unchecked unchecked would eventually get to a point where he saw the lesser evil being killing people that could commit crimes before they do so because that will ultimately result in a safer world for everybody and that will make his mission just. That's just not how it works for Ghost Rider and I think it is one of the big things that separates them when you look at them both as characters that you know punish people in whatever regard that might be. Or ghost ride them as it were. There's also something very interesting about how these two characters get lumped into kind of the same category and if you try to do that with these two series I don't I just don't think you're reading them I think like it would take be uh beyond feet that I can't even process for someone to oversimplify these two books together because I believe that Punisher is currently except for the scenes with Maria which are intentionally bright and beautiful and well lit the Punisher is telling a story in black white and blood every single page and the goal is how polished and beautiful can you make hideous like the only time stuff gets ugly in Punisher is the intentional sketchiness of the flashbacks whereas even the hand's most disgusting members are drawn with stunning physique in glorious detail with not a line of cross hatching and then you come over to Ghost Rider and everybody kind of looks like vomit (laughs) good vomit on purpose vomit the art is beautiful but like there is an intentional oh god you all look like shit going on here yeah this is a horror book through and through one of the things that I have really loved about it is it has called to the forefront a lot of what I have really loved about horror genre fiction that has come up lately and I notice it most especially in a lot of horror fiction podcasts that I listen to the most stark examples being Archive 81 and the Magnus Archives which are sort of horror by way of dark fantasy and sort of the larger cosmic horror vibe it's something that I feel like makes a lot of sense in the Marvel Universe and is often flirted with but Ghost Rider is really putting it all on every panel on every page and we're seeing the best conventions of that put forth in a way that I really enjoy Um, I'm not necessarily 100% certain on what it's driving towards but I love the ways that it's embracing the genre for this 
particular character because I think it's important for the growth of just the Ghost Rider mythos as a whole. By contrast, I just, I don't think that's anything to do with the Punisher. Even when you get to the Beast as a god, you know, you can kind of put that in the horror dark fantasy genre. If you really wanted to do that as a book, you could do the work to make it happen. But that's just not where Punisher is at. And I'm very happy with where Punisher is at. And I really like where Ghost Rider is at. If it can do more to serve the other Ghost Riders, particularly the two that we really love. The shock of it for me is Ghost Rider is the least important thing in the Ghost Rider title. I don't even mean Johnny. Ghost Rider is the least important part of the book. The book is really about sort of the map of horror that the Ghost Rider's flames mark out. I don't know that Ghost Rider by Benjamin Percy and Corey Smith is a statement on the particular nature of this magic. You know, Punisher is all about kind of redefining Punisher in a new way, but this feels as though it's about looking at Ghost Rider in an old way. A new look, though. I was very skeptical about this series early on. I was reading it because it's the kind of book that it, that pulls me in initially, and I don't mean it any disservice when I compare it to a classic 90s Hellblazer-esque Vertigo title. I mean that with great affection as someone who is pretty obsessed with John Constantine. This book won me over by refusing to be about Ghost Rider when I have so many other Ghost Riders. I am much more interested in riding upon. I really do think that's the right way to see it. Unfortunately, I'm not 100% sure that's the intention. Otherwise, I'm not really sure why you, for four issues, really don't talk about any other Ghost Riders or anything like that. But I really do like to view this as a look at the world and the state of the current Marvel dark fantasy horror corner of the universe, because I do think that's going to come into play more and more. It's a place that's really ripe for storytelling, and we've got a bunch of great characters that can slot into it. We know we've got a Midnight Suns book coming that looks really exciting, and I think this is a good time to take stock of what elements exist in the Marvel Universe that could be a part of this, how the Marvel Universe looks from this particular lens, and it doesn't necessarily matter who the main character is that we're following, who our viewpoint character is, but in some ways I like that it's Johnny Blaze because if we can go through this journey with him and have it mean something, we could also let him go in favor of others, having let him take us on this journey that then lets us follow other people inhabiting this world more fully. Because those other people are in a lot of ways the best part um wilmer and warroad really needed a minute to grow on me but they did you know there's stuff i still don't love exit 666 and stuff like dear god no this isn't god's work you know that's kind of tropey dialogue that's and, hell 101 we're way past that and so is the quality of this book but i understand with economy of page time and economy of panel time you're trying to find ways to make each line funny enough burn into the person's memory and you know their battle against the demon is really interesting because it's not the focus. Too many books would have made that a two-issue arc and it would have drawn out in a way that I'm like, yeah, great, cool. I'm really more excited about the circus of crime. Uh, people who know me know that I am a very big circus guy and a very big vaudeville guy and I'm pretty into creepy fucking clowns and uh, the creepier the circus, the fucking happier I am and uh, it's my favorite thing in the world and I could not have been happier than to see this goddamn fucking disturbed version of my precious circus crime as monsters. I did something similar in my first comic, Kid Riot. There's the vaude villains. So, uh, you know, the size 
change element of it is a very common thing in circus horror. I really appreciate that that Ben Percy really fucking showed his shit. It's really cool. As a guy who really loves circus horror, this was done with some really loving attention to detail. And I like that it set up a villain for us. Because one of my big problems with Ghost Rider is the spirit of vengeance thing where you always have to be like, is this the dude that I really want doling out vengeance and justice? But when you give us just weird, insane horror clown stuff, when he can just show up and be like, you guys are super evil and I might have a little evil in me, but I know that you should not the fuck be here and can fight them. That's a great space for Ghost Rider, especially this Ghost Rider to be in. He's a tough person to follow in terms of him seeing something in you that needs to be punished or revenged in some way. But fighting a crazy circus that does horrible body horror stuff to a whole town, fuck yeah, I'll, I'll get behind that. Yeah, you know, the thing I maybe don't need is the, I don't know, is he like, would we call this like fire scrying or something where like the, the writing is coming through him? It feels like there's a few too many passengers in the seat of lead character, whether it's Johnny, Ghost Rider, this thing that's writing through him that I don't know is the Ghost Rider. I feel perhaps like we'll start to get a few more pieces of the puzzle coming together with Marvel's current penchants for taking any book and saying, ha ha ha, done at six. Or, oh, you got to 12? That's impossibly old. Ice flow for you. We know Punisher is getting like, what, it's like 13 issues plus the four Punisher War General bonuses. So like, we know Punisher is in for a really beautiful 20 issue omnibus someday. And hopefully there's some crossover with Daredevil after we got that little panel in Daredevil number one. But I don't know. Yeah, we know what's coming more or less for Punisher. The tie-in of the hand with what's going on in Daredevil really does give it some stability that very few things in the Marvel Universe have. So my hope is that there is a solid plan for this that gets us to an ending point. This is not the greatest book I have ever read. It is not changing my feelings about Ghost Rider significantly, but it is really making me feel like there is enough room that I would see this series continue beyond six, beyond eight, into 12 issues if it could pull in the other elements of the Ghost Rider universe and maybe get some of that same stabilization that the Punisher has had by crossing over with Daredevil and giving the Ghost Rider world something really to connect with in the rest of the Marvel Universe. Something like Midnight Suns, just to really say Ghost Rider is an important part of this dark fantasy horror thing that we do really have going on for a lot of characters. He's here, his head is on fire, get used to it. Yay! It's in that same spirit of talking about magic that I'm really excited that the next segment in this episode is Strange Academy number 18. What a wild ride, an incredible run of issues. It's, you know, the 18th of Strange Academy plus the Death of Doctor Strange one shot. There's that beautiful director's cut of the first issue. There's the four issues of Terry Blaz's Reptile if you're a big Ava fan. And there's the appearances in Marvel Voices. Wow, just like Strange Academy has really left a lasting impression on the Marvel Universe and definitely our cast. I know we can't wait for volume two to pick up, but until then, I hope you guys enjoy this bit of coverage. TK, thanks for helping me handle this whole episode beginning to end. It was my pleasure. You guys can find the show every week on X's for Podcast on Twitter and at xsforpodcast.com. Three times a week we drop episodes. That's Monday's MC2, Wednesday's Modern Marvels, and Friday's XI4P premiere. You guys can also check out my original work over in the Young Men in Love anthology where I am super proud to share the space with incredible creators like Marvel's Terry Bloss, Anthony Oliveira, and Cena Grace. So I hope you guys check that out and that you really 
really like it. So until then, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, whether you're the fist of the hand or the beast of the fist or the hand of the foot, I don't know, but it all matters in this upcoming Great War. And we'll see ya. I'm TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. You can find me over on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey, I'm Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel. And I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we hope you guys survive this experience, unlike this volume of Strange Academy. Womp. Four months after we had intended to talk about it, <laughs> we are finally talking about Strange Academy number 18, the final issue of this volume as always written by scotty young with art by umberto ramos color artist is edgar delgado vc's clayton cowles is doing the letters yeah this book experienced a very long delay it was originally intended to be published in april it is now july there were times where i forgot about strange academy entirely in the meantime and i blame nobody you know we all know that because of the pandemic because of labor and supply shortages things are getting delayed it just happens it's just really unfortunate because this book had a lot of momentum driving towards a specific end. It was also coming at the end of a school year. They were talking about restarting it in the summer with semester two. That delay really killed some of this for me. And I'm also wondering if there were changes made to the story in the interim because this just did not feel like the ending I think I was expecting for this book. I was expecting this ending. I forgot where things had left off, to be honest. I thought that the semester had already ended. When I saw that this was coming out this week, I thought, oh, hey, we're starting semester two already. Okay, that's cool. I also had that moment of, wait, what? There's another issue? Oh, shoot. That delay was just long enough for my brain to go, I guess we did kind of close on a little bit of a cliffhanger, but at a decent resting place. It, Yeah, it just, it felt like a little left of where they were supposed to be. But again, so not mad at it because it was still a good story. If you aren't like eagle eye on what's happening, four months is a long time to go and you do mm-hmm. kind of forget what happened. And I think it really says something, Raven, that you your memory was like, oh, they ended on a good enough cliffhanger for th- that to have been the end of the first volume. Because I actually think you're right. But we did have one more issue, which leaves us on another cliffhanger that I maybe do not feel is the right one to leave this volume on, even though I like the story itself. Absolutely valid. Absolutely fair like honestly issue 17 ended in a place that felt very (sighs) grounded in that like we are students in a school and we have something to say about our being students in this school as members of this community it felt like we were going to pick up with all of the students you know in their homes being asked to come back because things were different the next semester and like when i opened up 18 i was like well this is not what i thought was gonna happen i was you know y'all may have been predicting this from day one but I was just shocked by some of the turns here because I had an issue with how 
Emily went to like a 15 from like a six in terms of like energy, anger and power all at once. I always kind of saw that coming, mostly because they started the story off as if Emily was going to be the main character of an anime. She had this really powerful life magic. There was a lot of focus on her for like the first couple of issues, I want to say. And then they always kept tying her back to Doyle and, and you know, a lot of stuff. Once she played God and resurrected Doyle, I'm like, this is going to get out of hand because this is a teenage white woman <laughs> with a whole lot of power, but not a lot of consequences. Gee, doesn't that feel familiar? <laughs> as soon as she resurrects Doyle, you know that she's going to go off the deep end be to me because for some reason we can't seem to write powerful women without having them go crazy for a period. Thank you! <laughs> it's the Dark Phoenix of it all. It's the Scarlet Witch of it all. And I'm just a little tired of the trope of women who can't handle their power because it makes them go crazy. This is like seriously no knock to Scotty Young and the team at all. No, it's, no, it's one of not. those things that if you're doing everything else right, I know there's going to be a stumbling block somewhere. And it sometimes it just takes a little time to reveal which stumbling block it's going to be. This was their lean into the, oh, oh, it's that trope. Oh. The ensemble of characters are so good. And this is not something that outshines the rest of the story. It's mm -hmm. just a thing that it's like, okay, this is a magic story. This is a magic girl. It's a thing that happens a lot in magic mm -hmm. stories. Anyway. And I think part of the thing that also does need to be refocused is that this book was born out of a time where Marvel editorially was trying to put a focus on putting strength back in the hands of kids and not just putting strength back in the hands of kids, but metered and logical progressions of their strength. End of the day, these kids are being pushed into a position that is escalating of real world scenarios, but not in a way that is outside of the scope of the real world. I don't inherently mean to imply that kids are incapable of anything. It's a little bit more like their cerebral cortexes aren't done developing and they need guidance. And one of the things this book really highlighted was how little fucking guidance these kids get from the biggest names in the fucking Marvel universe. Is this so strange can collect a tax benefit for helping kids? Because for all that these teachers have been involved with these kids sometimes, no wonder these kids wound up so lost. Absolutely. I mean, look at the, all the teachers sitting around in the conference room, none of them know where their students are. None of them seem to understand that, no, like a giant portion of your student body walked the hell out. And none of them, like, have called parents. They don't know how to contact these students. You're a bunch of fucking magic users, and none of you can use a, a telepathic spell or a calling stone spell or any way to, like, contact these children going, where are you? What's going on? Like, what the hell? Like, And you're all supposed to be some of the most powerful magic users ever but can't seem to be really asked out to actually show up for these kids like yeah i can understand why why all of them were like fuck it let's walk we're done these teachers are a morally ambiguous group at best magic marvel that's a lot of like not always do the right thing heroes the idea that they would all get together and be like we got to change the train the next generation and then when it's all of them you realize like oh we maybe don't have a moral center to handle this. It's actually kind of compelling in a lot of ways. It's a really weird thing because in this book, the heroes haven't gone anywhere. I mean, yeah, Doctor Strange is dead for five seconds, but Clea's doing an amazing job. You guys should check out Raven's coverage of that book over with the Midnight Mission. And so it's not like we don't have a Strange. And this book 
is struggling to find a place in a world where the other heroes aren't gone. The kids did say that Clea isn't at the Sanctum Sanctorum very often. We've only seen, what, four issues of with of Strange? Yeah, yeah. We don't really have any idea how long she's actually staying in the Sanctum. Mm-hmm. So she may not actually be as present as we're assuming. Well, and I mean, that also means Wong is not there that often. Right. I wouldn't be surprised by that. When the question was asked of like, how are you guys paying for us using all this magic? And it kept being like, don't worry about it. And even now, like we've we've delved into, there was a cost. They had to do stuff uh, with Hugoth to adjust things, but we still don't really know overall what the plan is, what the deal was that they made and how any of this is sustainable. And I feel like the long-term implications of that throughout all of the magic users' stories will end up becoming important and we may be looking at a change of the status quo of how magic works. And I have wondered if rather than implementing particularly intricate universe-wide rules, we might see a couple very clear establishing broad ones and then see more of a focus on how those very broad rules of how magic largely works uh, become disseminated amongst different ancestral traditions. You know, we've got characters like Zoe, we have Ava, we're seeing characters... I mean, even characters that don't come from, like, real-world ethnic groups, you know, like Desi... Flaley, Moonpetal, Captain Motormouth, Foth. <laughs> they all come from you know, specific magical traditions that are going to affect their magic differently. And it's very cool to see, you know, the ones of Limbo and the ones of Weird World, but then to have, like, you know, ethnic Yoruba traditions, to have South American traditions. I'm still really waiting on Jewish mysticism to get in the mix. I'm still waiting to see more of Jermaine's beautiful animus. Allowing creators to bring characters that represent their heritage and to be able to write and speak to the mystical traditions that come from that heritage and have that work with Marvel magic. This seems like the time to do that. And if they're not intentionally setting that up, it's happening really beautifully accidentally. So maybe we'll get something really neat out of it. I really wish at some point in this issue, Ilyana Rasputin had been like, guys, I ran away a lot when I was in school. This is no big deal. Because that was like her whole shebang when she was a new mutant. Also, Fashion Edgelord. Fashion Edgelord is absolutely correct for her. I feel like somebody who is a friend of hers would come up right behind her and be like, that did not turn out well, Ilyana. Do not tell these, <laughs> do not tell anybody that this is going to be okay. <laughs> Jake, earlier you brought up just kind of the trope that Emily has fallen into with this issue. She is, it turns out, corrupted by Doyle's ring, which was meant to protect her from dark energy, but is instead bonding her to it. Until we get the reveal that that is what's happening from Doyle and then we cut back to Emily and she's really ramping things up in terms of the crazy I had been really enjoying just the idea that like this strong leader young girl is charismatic enough to get all of her friends to care about what is actually an important issue you know what's being done to care for Calvin and she knows they have to do something about it and that's awesome and it's so cool that she rallies everybody together and then she just fails to account for anything because she's a kid. 
She has no demands. She has no plan. She just knows that something is wrong and she's angry about it and she's going to do something about it. Damn it. Baby's first attempt at doing something and not really necessarily facing consequences. That to me all really worked as kind of a hero's low moment, just a moment for a great character to fail and show us that, you know, we're all human. Stuff goes wrong. Like there's a way in which this is all kind of silly. Like she's just mad at her teachers and yet the madness is ramping up to like, I'm going to attack you and we're going to the dark dimension. On the one hand, that works for me. On the other hand, I really do see how it's kind of a mini me version of like, now I will go destroy a planet. I guess I'm just kind of wondering, is there a way to salvage that part of the story that does feel very real about a person with good intentions who has a lot of power and charisma, but is not at all perfect and has stepped into a moment of really big failure and flaw. People have been coming to Emily and going, hey girl, you might want to slow down. You might want to slow that roll. You, you know, you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself. You know, you're you're a little too much. You're not thinking your shit through. In fact, Zoe did that on a number of occasions, mostly because she's fucked around with magic before and found out the consequences of it in the most horrifying ways. Like it cost her family a lot. And here Emily is just coming in with more balls than brains sometimes. And like she's been like told several times from from characters, usually characters of color, hey, you need to slow it down a little bit. And yet here's Emily, a basically a white girl becoming a white woman who is not listening, who is taking power that honestly does not belong to her. It has no consequence for her. So she thinks she is the master of it. And even when given every indication that she needs to slow her fucking role, she just plows forward and she drags everybody down with her. And so she doesn't have an actual plan. She doesn't have any set of demands. She doesn't have any idea of what they actually want. She's like, we just need to walk out. And it's like, okay, well then what comes after? And I'm seeing real life play out in the exact same way where people of color quite often are going, hey, we need to set up plans and backups and we need to build a community and this, that, and the other. And nope, that that seems to be mostly wholly ignored, especially amongst the people who have power, but have not a whole lot of accountability for it. So yeah, this was fucking predictable for me because I live this real life every day. There is something really resonant, Raven, about your analysis of the interplay of the power and privilege that Emily has, how she doesn't take any input from the people around her once she's given this sort of or takes up this sort of leadership role within her community and barrels through to the detriment and destruction of her of her classmates. She's actively hurting her classmates now, confining them with her power, shoving them back, not letting them have input. And that is such a teenage move as well. Miko, you were talking about these kids and their, you know, their undeveloped brains, their impulse control problems because they're young. And, you know, she is young and she has a lot of power and she has a lot of privilege and she doesn't have a lot of understanding of either of those things. And so she is just going for it. And it's hurting. We're starting to see the splintering of the group. You see Shaylee and Desi starting to question things. I'm glad that there are some students who are 
are starting to wonder if maybe they've made the wrong decision in following Emily. I'm hoping that they will take it a step further and start calling her out. I just don't want to see the kids get like, it's time to battle royale for dominance of our school, 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 school. <laughs> I, you know, I want to see them be like, hey, that's what the heroes do. The heroes do dumb, stupid Civil Warsy things. Mm-hmm. You know what we should do? Let's all sit down. Let's watch Is It Cake? And laugh it out. You know what I mean? You inspired everyone to walk out. That's the easy part. Soon they're going to realize what they're giving up by following you and will need to know why they should continue. I love that because it's like, yeah, you did the easy part. Now, where's the rest? (laughs) The rest is in Midnight Suns where Zoe's headed. (laughs) I love her so much. Well, and I do really wonder, like, will we, with the next volume of this, have a chance to reckon with the human mistakes that Emily has made and have her take those as they are and take responsibility for them and deal with those as massive failings that have consequences, but separate from then you got possessed by your ring, (laughs) stuck the mindless ones on us and then opened a portal to the dark dimension. That is the thing that really kind of bums me out about this. I feel like we could have gone 75 to 80% of the way of the escalation that this book had without Emily being corrupted or possessed or anything Mm -hmm. and she would still have a lot to answer for oh yeah by adding in this corruptive element i very much worry that it will become an excuse for everything and even if that isn't the case i just we had so much to work with with just her being a Mm dum-dum that now if we're going to take time in the next issue to do a battle against the ring that is possessing her that still just becomes like oh it wasn't her was the correct from the ring. Having a plot device like this is always good to have for a writer because when stuff gets too complicated or something goes too far, you can dial it back in a way that you have, you know, plausible deniability. It wasn't my fault, it was the bling. <laughs> I mean, she hasn't crossed the line of killing anyone, well, killing anyone she hasn't brought back yet, but she's, you know, she's ah! she's still redeemable. She's still redeemable as a as a character. She can oh, still yeah, come yeah. back and be humbled in this experience and be better for it. But the way the story is building right now that's not my prediction for what's going to happen certainly i love the nuanced interplay between the emotions of all the different characters and honestly you can't just go oh this is the bad guy oh this Mm -hmm. is you know the the person who is absolutely in the wrong like you can understand why each person or each group is taking the stand that they are taking and it's like the kids are walking out because calvin was treated exceedingly unfairly and they're not being uh what the cost of their magic is and you know they've got all this other shit that's going on they're like look don't treat us like we're stupid like we can tell that there's something going on here now we've got you know a dead headmaster and and you know all this other shit going on like somebody needs to just talk to us like we've got two brain cells to rub together what the fuck you know so like and then of course you know the the grown-ups are like we don't want to overburden these kids because this is a lot of heavy shit that we're dealing with i don't know if they're ready for it so of course they're going to sort of keep them in the dark so like sit down and talk it out but also doyle damn it go back and pay your soothsayer don't be shortchanging an elderly woman possibly on a fixed income jesus 
He said he'd rock smell her later. Oh my god, whatever. You can't do that if you're dead. Again. But like, you also, like, big family ties, you're gonna be out there making your dad look a fool. I don't want to say childhood is scarring, but instead, let's say it, you know, childhood is part of the mosaic, and we're each made up of a million little tiles, right? And childhood represents a lot of those base framework tiles. And we're saying, as people who have had experiences and have survived, we can see into these kids a lot of things that aren't being discussed directly we're talking about a lot of societal damage to these kids but by virtue of who these kids are there's a lot of parental damage that really gets underplayed in an effort not to somehow revilify some already villains and i think that's an interesting choice yeah i this whole run i have not been touching desi as sim's daughter because that's just i mean given the history with magic which who is also also in this book it's just it's too messy to touch that so i don't really know how to square that except to just kind of like when i read desi just kind of white out in my head anything about her parentage and be like oh she's so cute she's so cute she's got those pink word bubbles oh god don't don't bring me to sim well and i mean i think the bigger problem there is uh, desi could be an interesting character for that exact reason mm-hmm. there are wonderful people in the world who have horrible parents and not mm-hmm. just like they were bad but he's a murderer he is a assaulter the problem is that sim shows up on parents day and walks on campus he brings her there like mm-hmm. he's sim the dad that's the really shitty part i mean dormammu also has a kid there so there's clearly a level of like you stay away Doyle is welcome because Doyle is his own person and he's not his father. Dormammu is, of course, not welcome. Given that this seems to be a sort of possibility, it very much surprises me that what they chose to do was have Sim in the issue dropping his kid off at school like everybody else. That, that to me, is a little disappointing because everything else about it's 99% Desi. So everything else about Desi works. And I think even, I mean, she has very clearly a lot of trauma that it just takes a couple lines to be like, and a lot of this is because of my dad who is not welcome here but i can still come and i think that would give us like an even more powerful message what are your hopes for the future of this series as we move towards semester two i'm hoping that we get to see clea next issue since we have students now invading her both her uh, homes both of her homes yes (laughs) it's just a fuck her house party <laughs> I think we are about to see Clea take on the entire Strange Academy and whoop somebody's ass quite physically. I would love to see Clea come in and just kind of school Emily and be like, oh, you think your problems are big? I was a prisoner in my own realm for a very long time, and then some man had to free me, and it took me forever to reclaim my power and my authority and my agency, but here I am. And my mother is also a bitch. I want to see Clea come in, just like humble Emily somewhat. It's not her feelings about wanting to leave and why she wants to leave and the, the anger that she feels are invalid. It needs to be contextualized. It needs to be framed. I just want to see the book age with grace because the hardest thing about a really classic run is when it burrows itself so in deeply and so entrenched into its era that it's hard to separate the book for its value. I think about how 
how, and don't get me wrong, you know, four volumes, highly successful book, who the fuck am I? But Runaway squandered a lot of its potential. And Young Avengers squandered a lot of its potential. And a lot of these books that ramped up a new generation of kids get mired in the kind of the blood of the time, for lack of a better word. Take a look at the Marvel Universe as sort of like a solid body and all of these story beats that are blood, that are current, that run through the body. And it's all structured around these bones that are the hard and fast things that you can't break up, right? One of the things that the kid book tends to get a little bit over and over concerned with is kind of the marrow, the thing that makes up the stories where they're always analyzing what the heroes are doing and they're responding in such a way. And that means the kid books are only ever really a reflection of the adult books. And you see that in Young Avengers as a reflection of the new Avengers and the vacuum created by Disassembled. I love the idea that Zoe would leave this title and go join the Midnight Suns. And I don't need to see her in Strange Academy again as long as she remains well-written and continues to develop and grow because the way these characters become powerhouses is they appear in multiple titles. So my hope is that Strange Academy grows with itself as much as it grows with the Marvel Universe. And, you know, it's a school book. People should graduate. None of us expect that this is going to be everybody goes for four years of high school and we see that and then there's graduation all at the same time. That happens with the X-Men sometimes and I often feel like by the time we get to them all leaving at the same time, it doesn't feel as holistic as I would wish. If Zoe ends up being the first one to be like, I've had my time here and now I'm going to go be a badass with Wolverine. I would love to see Strange Academy as an institution, regardless of numbering or volume or author. I would love to see this institution continue for a long time and have characters that stay longer and have ones that come impress us, get us excited about them, and then go on to be great characters in other stories. I think this is a fertile ground in which to plant seeds for the Magic Marvel Universe and give us some new characters that we can really get excited about. I mean, I just, again, I look at all the ancestral magics we see here and the people in the world that that reflects who get really excited seeing their traditions in a book like this. I just think there's so much room to grow the idea of Strange Academy, regardless of what book it's in. I mean, that's that's my main hope for this book is that they develop beautiful, wonderful, nuanced characters who are interesting and skilled and competent and work with ancestral magics or magics that are very much tied to the people and culture that they come from. I love to see that, but I don't want the, they're just going to be high schoolers forever. It's like, no, dude, he's 29. That should not be a high schooler anymore. I want to see them grow for a couple of years and then move to other titles or other you know portions of the universe and whatnot. And then, hey, bring in possibly your next class or have your older graduating students go out and find new magic and new children who can use magic, but who need guidance. Like, let me see that beautiful nuance spread to the rest of the universe. 